Good morning, everyone. I'll be uh, preaching this morning from John chapter 1, and I'm looking at verse 14. John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh, pitched camp amongst us, and we observed his glory, glory like one completely unique from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we do give you great thanks for the wonderful revelation that we have in your Son, and we pray that as we consider uh, these words from John's Gospel, would you please uh, set our minds uh, and our hearts on your Word, and we ask for your Spirit to do his good work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Oscars are famous for, I think, three things, most recently. Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, handing out little golden statues, and the red carpet as celebrities dress up in all their glitzy glory and they parade in front of the paparazzi and we get to see how stunning and how beautiful and how fantastic and glorious they are as celebrities. But of course, uh, celebrities don't always live in glitzy outfits. Most often they live in ordinary clothes like you and I do. Uh, And so paparazzi are often snapping celebrities in their casual clothes on uh, in unguarded moments on street corners. And we get to gawk at how ordinary they look. Uh, We don't look at them and at these moments and think, oh, wow, look at how glorious and glamorous Uh, they appear. In fact, sometimes we can be quite shocked or surprised at how ordinary they look. Well, in John 1 verse 14, it's like the gospel writer John is a paparazzo who combines the red carpet and the unguarded street corner into one. He gives us the word the mighty divine word dressed down Uh, and it's in this dressed down state that we see God in his full blazing glory. It's not chic and style, it's meek and mild. It's not formal, it's rather normal. It's not red carpet glitz. It's pitching camp and flesh, but it's precisely in that sheer ordinariness in which God comes to this world that we see the true majesty of God. The Word became flesh and pitched camp among us, and we observed His glory. I want us to think this morning about how those words might have sounded to a Jewish audience in ancient times, how they would have sounded to a Gentile audience in ancient times, and how they might sound to our world today. And I want us to think about just how volcanically significant these words are. Well, firstly, how would this, uh, these words have sounded in a Jewish world? John makes this comparison between the word and 
God as we encounter him in the Old Testament, particularly, uh, but not exclusively, but particularly in the Sinai event. At Sinai, Israel comes to God, comes to the foot of a mountain, and the mountain is quaking and rumbling and there is fire and there is smoke and the people are scared out of their minds about this site and they're fearful to approach. They encounter this God who just seems so awesome and awful and they don't want to go near and so they tell Moses, we are so scared. You go, you go speak to God and then bring us back word about what he he wants, what he's like, what he has to say to us. They're so terrified. And so they don't want to go near. And so Moses goes up the mountain and then he comes back to Israel. But as we read through the, the accounts of Israel at Sinai, God is always over there. He's at a distance and he's frightful, cannot be approached. He is a holy God who encounters and confronts Israel with his magnificence and they cower in fear. God is over there. He's at a distance. Now, God does not maintain that distance in its entirety because as we keep reading through Exodus, God commands Moses to make a tent, to pitch a camp for God to live amongst the Israelites. And so Moses builds uh, the tabernacle. And we can hear John, you know, echoing the, the account of the building of the tabernacle as God tells Moses the layout of this particular tent, how it's to be set up, where it's to be put in relation to all the tribes of Israel. And while God, in a sense, comes close to Israel, there is still a distance that's maintained. Because the way that the tabernacle is set up is designed to keep Israel out to still keep Israel away to some extent from the holy God who is in their midst. God comes near, but he's still, in some sense, over there. He's in there, he's amongst us, but he's over there still. And so it wasn't a case of any Israelite being able to just rock up whenever they wanted and approach God and speak to him. No, no, no. There were were a whole set of protocols to go through in order to have even the slightest kind of encounter with God, with this God. And as we keep reading through the Old Testament, we see God coming to his people at various times and in various ways, but one of the most common experiences that Israelites have when they have an encounter with God is fear. They are so frightened about what they are encountering. They are overwhelmed. We've already alluded, uh, thank you Nathan, to Isaiah 6 and how Isaiah the prophet 
looks into the temple and has a vision of the God, the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh, seated on his throne there in the temple. And it's as though Isaiah just kind of catches the, the edge of Yahweh's hem, just the corner of his robe. And that is enough to think that he is an absolute dead man. He's a goner. How could he possibly even catch the slightest glimpse of the edge of Yahweh's robe and stay alive? Because he himself, as he confesses, is a sinful man, a man of sinful lips, living amongst a people of sinful lips. And we see a similar thing with Ezekiel in the first few chapters of Ezekiel as the prophet is living in exile in Babylon amongst those who were carried away by the Babylonians into a foreign land, away from Yahweh's own promised land. And it's there, outside of Yahweh's own promised land, the covenant land, that Ezekiel has this vision of the blazing glory of God with all its fantastic, wonderful array of creatures that are, in a sense, guarding and yet obscuring God. And Ezekiel struggles to put into words what it is he's seeing. It's like, I, I saw the appearance of the likeness of the image of this. And it's like, he's really struggling for words. And his reaction is to fall on his face, catatonic, in fear. He is absolutely dazzled. John says that that engagement with God, what Israel had at Sinai, what Isaiah had in the temple, what Ezekiel had in Babylon... It is just a drop in the ocean compared to the magnitude of glory that is encountered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ is the God who confronted Israel at Sinai, the God whom Isaiah glimpsed in the temple, the God who confronted Ezekiel in Babylon, we see him not over there, but right here in flesh, touchable, talkable. You could literally rub shoulders with him and look him in the eyes. That God became flesh not just he took on flesh as though he were wearing it he became one of us it is one of the most astounding claims of scripture the god of the universe who holds everything in the palm of his hand who breathed us into existence became one of us, and in precisely becoming like one of us, Sinai, Isaiah, and Ezekiel 
almost fade in comparison. It's like the light of the sun eclipsing the light of the moon and the stars. John says, we beheld his glory. Well, what would these words have sounded like in a Gentile world? Well, the world, the Gentile world was used to the notion of the logos, the word. Uh, the, the word, according to Plato, was the ideal from which the, the physical world derived. Uh, according to the Stoic philosophers, the word, the logos, was the rational principle of the world, that which gave order and reason to the world and gave nature its rhythms and patterns, uh, basically the grammar of the universe, the DNA of reality. And so a Gentile reader hearing this would have heard that that principle of the world, organising principle of the world, became a human. Now, the Gentiles in the ancient world, they were used to their gods invading the, the human realm. You know, Zeus frequently visited the world of human beings, often on some kind of escapade. Uh, to seduce or even to rape an innocent woman uh, and often to leave half-gods as offspring behind in this world to then wreak some more havoc here and there. Um, that's just how the ancient gods were, were viewed. Uh, they came and they went as they pleased and they often just leave the, left a trail of destruction behind them. And that kind of thing helps us understand the, you know, the incident in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey and they come to the city of Lystra uh, and they heal a man as they proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and everyone goes, oh, the gods are here, the gods have visited us. Uh, Her you know, Barnabas is Hermes and uh, Paul must be Zeus or actually the other way around because uh, Paul was doing the talking. But that's not what John was saying. John was not saying that God just kind of parachuted in and left. God became a human and didn't leave a path of destruction. He came and left grace and truth. That was such a revolutionary word in the ancient world. Here was a God unlike any other. The God who gave all of creation its form, its patterns, he came and became just like one of us. Not like one of the, you know, the god, the, the kings of the ancient world who might have been deified uh, either after their lifetime or have claimed to have been a god. Some of you, you know, might have heard of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. You know, the Greek name Epiphanes means God made manifest. You know, a modest nickname that he chose for himself. Those guys died and their corpses rotted or they were burnt and put into an urn. But the word who became flesh died, was raised to life with flesh and reigns evermore. He's a fantastic message. That revolutionised the ancient world. Now, of course, when 
these claims are made in our world today. Our world often will, um, people will think, uh, particularly in Western societies these days, as we move beyond uh, our Christian heritage, that, you know, belief in God and all those kinds of things was really just a gap filler. God was a way of explaining things that we didn't have a way of explaining before we got science. And since we've now got science and the Enlightenment's happened, we know better. We've graduated from believing in God. Well, what, is, what do these words sound like in our modern world today? It's as though John is saying, you know that science thing that you put all your faith in? that seems to explain so much of reality, it became a person. It became a human being and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. Now, of course, we know from the revelation that we have in the scriptures, the word is not just some abstract principle that became human. The word is personal. The word is God who is personal, has an identity. God is not just a force or an abstract concept. God is personal. And that's something that this world can't say about science. Science is not actually a person. But what we encounter in the Lord Jesus Christ is the God who revealed himself to Israel who continued in a constant relationship with Israel, the God who created this world, created the universe and gave it its rhythms and patterns and continues to sustain it, that which today our world would probably call Mother Nature, a personification of abstract concepts, we know that he is a person who came into this world to give us grace and truth. What Isaiah saw, what Israel encountered, what Ezekiel saw, what a scientist looks at down the, uh, might uh, conclude by looking down a microscope, we know that the one who was behind that entered our world to be like one of us in all the ordinariness of daily life. Look at the person sitting right next to you. If you lived 2,000 years ago, you could have done that with the God of the universe. That just blows my mind. I hope it blows your mind. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great praise and thanks that your Son, the one who was with you and in you through all eternity, became a human being just like us. We thank you, Lord, that there were people there who witnessed this, who saw the word as flesh. We thank you, Father, for this wonderful revelation and the grace and truth that we have received through it. In Jesus' name, amen.